My guest today is running for president of the United States, and uh, he's a very unusual candidate. One of the most non-politician-like candidates you're ever going to hear talk. And his platform is largely based on the concept of universal basic income. I really enjoyed talking to him. I won't describe it any further without butchering it in the uh, beginning of the podcast. I will let Andrew do all the talking. Please welcome Andrew Yang. Yes, and we're live. Hello. Hey, Joe. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, Sam Harris sends his regards. Yeah, Sam's a beautiful man. He is. I love that guy. Um, so universal basic income. This is what this is all about. Yes. Jamie. Yeah, that's what my campaign for president is all about. That's a an interesting like uh, focus of a campaign and, and very unusual. And I mean, four years ago, you never even thought that that would have a chance at all. But this is a subject that has been gaining momentum. And it, it made a, I made a big shift because uh, I had my friend Eddie Wong on once, and he was the first person to bring it up. And I, my initial knee-jerk reaction was, get the fuck out of here. Like, universal basic income. Just going to give people money. They're just going to be lazy. Nothing's ever going to get done. That's a terrible idea. And then I started paying attention to the rise of AI and automation and how many jobs are going to get taken yes, away. Yes. from. And then once you see the actual numbers, it's pretty staggering. Yeah, and that's how I got there, Joe. Like I spent the last seven years running an organization that I had started called Venture for America. And we helped create about 3,000 jobs in Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Birmingham, New Orleans, other cities around the country. And I saw that we're pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. And that for every 5, 10, 50 jobs that my entrepreneurs are going to create, we're going to lose 5, 10, 50,000 jobs. It's not something that people intuitively suspect could be a real issue either. It's it's one of the, one, the ones where you kind of have to like go shake people like, hey, look at this. This is coming. There's a cliff. We're going towards this cliff. It's, it's darker still in that. So uh, when I was digging into the numbers, I found that it's not this cliff that we're heading towards. It's actually more of a curve that we're on. Uh, what I've been telling people is that we're in the third inning now where one of the main reasons why Donald Trump won – in 2016 is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs that were based in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states you needed to win in the center of the country. And a lot of that was just manufacturing work. And if you go to a factory, you'll see it's just giant robot arms as far as the eye can see. Mm. So it's not just that you have artificial intelligence on the horizon. It's that we've been eating away at the most common jobs in the U.S. economy uh, for almost 20 years now. And it's just now hitting a point where it's pushing more and more unskilled men in particular out of the workforce. Now, are there other alternatives that you've considered other than just universal basic income, like educating people about this being a real issue and perhaps pushing them or directing them towards other occupations? Yeah, so that that's the uh, – recipe that most people are attracted to. So I just want to unpack the numbers a little bit more so people have a sense of it. I was just with a bunch of truck drivers in Iowa last week. And there's a guy, Dennis Bogaski, that gave me a ride from Altoona to Grinnell in Iowa, where I've been campaigning. And the, the truth of it, Joe, is that there are three and a half million truck drivers in this country right now. It's the most common job in 29 states. And the average trucker is a 49-year-old guy with a high school education, maybe ex-military like Dennis was, uh, and they're making like $50,000 a year. So then if you say, hey, I'm going to retrain half a million truck drivers, for what exactly is like issue number one? Right. And that these guys didn't love school 
30 years ago. It's not like driving a truck has made them really excited about the idea. Yeah. And then the new job you're training them for, I looked into the data as to how good we were at retraining, let's say, displaced manufacturing workers in the Midwest when we started decimating their jobs. And we're terrible at it. Like according to independent studies, government-funded retraining programs had a success rate of between 0 and 15 percent in real life. Like this is Mm -hmm. what actually happened to the workers of Michigan and Indiana and Ohio. And so if you say we're going to retrain these people, then you also have to come up with a, a, a way for us to become amazing at something that right now we're really, really bad at. And if you were an employer, which you are, would you rather employ a 50-year-old former truck driver with health problems who got some certificate program? Or would you rather hire a 25-year-old kid who went to community college, is probably cheaper, has lower expectations, uh, and his skills are natively going to be a little fresher? I mean, if you were an employer, you'd probably choose number two. I agree, um, but I, I'm. I mean, I'm trying to look at this through rose-colored glasses. I guess I'm well, trying to think if, if there's a way that these people can adapt. You know, I mean, some will for sure. You can retrain and reskill some people, but if you look at even the conversations we're having around this, where people legitimately talk about retraining coal miners to be software engineers, mm. stuff that on the face of it makes no sense. But the the reason why we're stretching for that is because we're looking for some kind of retraining-oriented solution when the numbers show that that's just not going to be the recipe that for actual success. And this is where, where this whole learn-to-code controversy is coming out online where people are actually getting banned for writing learn-to-code. It's a, really a hot subject on Twitter, and it's very confusing too, and I haven't really gotten an explanation for why that's such an offensive thing to say. But people are getting banned yeah, for even I know, I joking around, this. saying "learn to code." It's very weird. But the yeah. idea behind it is that it's kind of preposterous to ask someone who doesn't have an education to do something that's as difficult as code computer language. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're going to get to a point where AI can do some basic coding at a certain level. So if you think about the impulse to say learn to code, what it's really saying is you need to do something that the market values. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, being a truck driver, the market's not going to value that much when the trucks start driving themselves in the next five to ten years. So what does the market value? And then people are like, well, coding and STEM and and, – engineering skills. And so there's a drive to try and push people in those directions. But if you look at the numbers, uh, about 8% of American jobs right now are in STEM fields, like in technology, engineering, math, etc. So you're talking about 92% of the population that is not in those fields. And it's unrealistic to expect that 92% to somehow shift into the 8%. Right. And there even be places for them. There. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that, that, that's true too. Even if they perfectly seamlessly transition, there's too many people for those jobs. Yeah, so uh, I've been driven to universal basic income in part because I've been looking at the numbers. The five most common jobs in the United States right now are administrative and clerical work, retail and sales, food service and food prep, truck driving and transportation and manufacturing. Those five jobs comprise about half of all American jobs. Only 32% of Americans graduate from college. So the average American is a high school grad doing one of these five jobs. And if you look at it, technology is already doing a number on each of these jobs. Like the first administrative and clerical includes call center workers. And AI is in the process of uh, taking over that job. Retail and sales, 30% of malls are closing in the next four years. So the, the danger here is to think of it as artificial intelligence is coming 
it's actually already eating up the most common jobs in our economy, and it's driving Americans uh, into distress in various ways in the numbers. Now, when you're talking about universal basic income, two, there's two questions that come up. How much money and where is it coming from? Yeah. So first I want to say that if you look at the heritage of universal basic income, it, it's a deeply American idea where Thomas Paine was for it at the founding of the country. And then Martin Luther King was for it. Milton Friedman, the godfather of conservative economists, was for it. And one state has had it in effect for 37 years where everyone in that state gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. This is Alaska? Yeah, it's Alaska, and they fund it with oil money. Mm -hmm. And what I'm going around telling people is that technology is the oil of the 21st century. So I, I know you spoke to another guest about, hey, how do you get, let's say, approximately $3 trillion a year to fund universal basic income? And the great thing is that it's – well, the first thing is it's not actually $3 trillion. And the reason why it's not $3 trillion is that if you look at what we're currently doing, we have – uh, we're spending about $1.5 trillion right now on 126 welfare programs and Social Security. And so if you show up to someone's door and say, hey, here's a dividend of $1,000 a month, but if you're already getting more than $1,000 in stuff, we're not just going to stack it on top. Uh, you know, We're gonna just going to say you're guaranteed 1000 And if you're already getting more, then this doesn't touch you. You can keep your current stuff. If you're getting 700 in food stamps and whatnot, then you can just get 300 on top. So the three trillion actually shrinks a lot very fast because of the fact that about half of Americans are already getting various uh, income support from the government. So the real price tag is closer to about 1.8 trillion. If you say everyone who's 18 and up. Now, for context, the entire U.S. economy is now 20 trillion, up 5 trillion in the last 12 years, and the federal budget's 4 trillion. So you're looking at $1.8 trillion. It's a lot of money, uh, but it's actually manageable. And one of the things that I haven't heard discussed here with you is that when you put money into people's hands, the money doesn't disappear. Like if I gave you 1000 bucks a month, it probably would not make a big difference in the economy because it would just go into your account somewhere and you know nothing would happen. But we all know that right now most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. 57% of Americans can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. So you put $1,000 a month into their hands, it's going to go right back into the economy. They're going to spend it on food, child care, car repairs they've been putting off, the occasional night out. And then all of those businesses end up hiring more people, and then we end up getting some of the money back as tax revenues. So of the $1.8 trillion, we're going to get back, let's call it $400 billion in new tax receipts because everyone's going to be spending more money. We're going to save 1 to 200 billion on things like incarceration and homelessness services and emergency room health care. I was in New Hampshire uh, last month and a prison guard said to me, and this is a prison guard, he said we should pay people to stay out of jail because we waste so much money when they're in jail. Like he sees all the waste in the system. So if you imagine a society where everyone's getting a thousand bucks a month, that's like a – it's a great incentive to try and stay out of jail because, you know, you stop getting it if you wind up in jail. Uh, and it re reduces recidivism because when you come out of jail, at least you have, you know, a thousand bucks a month waiting for you and then you're less inclined to, to commit a crime and head back in. How much crime do you think you would actually prevent though by giving people a thousand dollars a month? I mean I think most of the people that are doing crime, whether it's thieve, uh, thievery or assault, they're not thinking this out. You know, this is this is just either a way of life for them, either you know they're they've got real mental issues, 
or a, a pattern of behavior that they can't break. I really don't think that $1,000 a month is going to fix any of that. Well, it's not going to fix all of it, for sure. I mean, we'll still have jails. It's not like, you know, silver bullet. Yeah. Uh, but at the margins, would it keep, like, that person who's falling through the cracks and feels like they have no place in society? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe they, you know, it's like the people around them are also like, hey, you know, you don't have any value. And you get 1000 bucks a month, maybe, like, it keeps them off at the margins. And everything we're talking about is at the margins. I mean, everything's like this statistical curve and you're taking the people who are, let's call it like the last 10 to 20%. Mm-hmm. But if you reduce our incarcerated population by 10 to 20%, I mean, that's billions and billions of dollars. So you, you're saving money on a bunch of things we spend like a, about a trillion dollars on right now, like healthcare, incarceration, homelessness services. And then the, the magic is that if you have a thousand bucks a month, and you're a parent, so you feel this, that studies have shown that your kids are healthier, better nourished, more likely to graduate from high school and get further education, mental health improves, uh, relationships improve, domestic violence goes down, hospital visits go down, and your worker productivity goes up. I mean, uh, you're a, an entrepreneur and CEO, so you know when you run a company, you say, I'm going to invest in my people. I'm going to like treat them well and try and train them and give them resources because you know that will increase your productivity as an organization. In the public sector, we have the opposite approach. We're like if I can just avoid spending money on you, <laughs> then, then you know, I'm going to somehow save money. When we end up spending that money in very, very dark, costly, counterproductive ways in the back end because they wind up you know, uh, uh, in our institutions. And our institutions just spend a, a truckload of money. So if you look at the cost savings and the value gains and the economic growth, that actually gets you back about a trillion dollars of the 1.8. This is like the trickle-up economy because none of the money disappears. It goes right back into the economy. And the way you get the last $800 billion or so is related to what we think is happening with AI and all these advanced technologies. Because if you look at who's going to win with AI and uh, self-driving cars and trucks – the, the savings from robot trucks are estimated to be $168 billion a year, just from that one thing. So the problem is that the American public is going to see very little of that money uh, because the winners are going to be the trillion-dollar tech companies that are great at just not paying a lot of taxes. They'll move it through Ireland. Amazon will say didn't make any money this quarter, no reason to pay taxes. And so what we need to do is we need to put in a new tax that actually gets the American public a slice of every – robot truck mile, Amazon transaction, Facebook ad. Uh, And every other industrialized country already has this tax. It's called a value-added tax. And because our economy is so vast at $20 a value-added tax at even half the European level generates about $800 in new revenue. And that gets you all the way there. So this is much more achievable and affordable than most people think uh, when they start unpacking how the numbers uh, work out. So essentially, it would be the biggest corporations, the the companies that gain or that have the largest revenue. They're going to be paying most of this. Yeah, but they're going to get some of that money back, obviously. Because one of the things I say to the CEOs, it's like if everyone in Missouri is getting a thousand bucks, you know, Amazon's going to see some of that because they're just going to buy more stuff. Right. That's true for all of the big companies. What I say to CEOs, and I've spoken to groups of dozens of CEOs. What's really bad for your business is when people don't have money to spend. What's good yeah. for your business is when they do. 
So they're going to give up some money at the top end, but they're just going to end up getting it back uh, when their consumers end up spending a bit more. And has this been actually fleshed out, like the the real numbers or the projections of how much they're going to get back? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like the so the Roosevelt Institute studied this plan of everyone getting a thousand bucks a month and projected it would create two million new jobs uh, and grow the economy by eight to ten percent. And then you can model out what that means to each business because in that climate, they're going to see a similar uptick in revenues. Did they factor in all the jobs that are going to be lost? So one of the things that's a misconception about universal basic income is that uh, it somehow will like facilitate job loss. Well, for job losses, though, is the reason for universal basic income in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah which we're in the midst of right now. Like right now as we're sitting here together – the labor force participation rate in the United States is 63%, uh, which is the same levels as El Salvador and the Dominican Republic. That's right now. Like uh, 94 million or so Americans have left the workforce over the last number of years. Now, a lot of that's natural demographics. A lot of that's people in school. But about 5 million of it is unskilled men who have gotten pushed out of the workforce. So – uh, so again, this is not like uh, you know we're going to solve a problem that's coming down the pike. Like we're actually in the middle – of this problem. So if you put a thousand bucks a month into people's hands, it actually grows the economy and creates jobs uh, because of more economic activity. Now, when you say a problem that's coming down the pike, what what are the projections in terms of like the timeline? Yes. For- so uh, there are a lot of the projections are actually pretty consistent with each other, which means they're probably right. <laughs> so <laughs> the uh, so Bain says you're looking at uh, between 20 and 30 percent of jobs subject to automation by 2030, which is pretty soon. It's like 11 wow. years from now. McKinsey says about 25 percent. Uh, the Obama White House, literally like their last day in office, they issued a report saying, hey, guys, we're going to automate away all the jobs and then like, you know, cl- turn the lights off. Um, they said 83 percent of jobs that make less than $20 an hour will be subject to automation by 2030. MIT is saying the same thing. Uh, And so we have 11 years to try and accelerate meaningful solutions. And this 11 years, it's not like it all happens on 2030. It's going to happen between now and then progressively. 